I suppose that uh, it's a bit ironic that uh, we're in the text that we're in today in Jeremiah. We chose not to change it. We didn't plan for it to fall on July 4th, but uh, the reason I say it is ironic is because on this day where we as a nation are celebrating our freedom, our text has us remembering the fact that we are exiles, that we are strangers, that we are foreigners in this land. We're in Jeremiah chapter 29. And as you know, the story, Jeremiah preaching to a rebellious people, prophesying captivity in the the Babylonian land for 70 years. This is the constant refrain. And the, the response is likewise constantly rejecting God's word, rejecting Jeremiah. There's no way we're going to go into captivity. There's no way God's going to destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, destroy his people here. There's no way he would do that, and yet he's doing it. By the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he is exercising punishment and in many cases, thankfully, discipline among the people of God. We get to a point in Jeremiah 29 where people are actually, um, they are exiles. They have been, many people have been deported from Jerusalem and they have gone on to Babylon and they are receiving a letter in this chapter from Jeremiah as exiles in Babylon. So if they didn't believe what Jeremiah was saying up to this point, now they certainly believe him to some degree because they've been taken from their homes. The temple has been stripped of its furniture. Everything they know is deteriorating before their eyes. And so Jeremiah writes a letter to encourage all the saints that are in Babylon, in exile. Before we open up and read this text, I want to remind you of a couple of things that should be uh, common knowledge to you. First off, as Paul writes in the New Testament, when we're applying this, uh, I want us to understand this, that our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Keep in mind, this is Philippians 3.20. Paul declares this realizing that something is better than what we see before our eyes in the nations that we live in nowadays. All the Christians across the world are clinging to the truth that there is something better, that our citizenship is not ultimately found in these earthly nations, but it's ultimately found in heaven. And beyond that, it's not just that, you know, one day God is going to rescue us and then we're going to be in heaven. Like, that's not the whole story. In fact... We're going to be rescued, but then one day upon the resurrected body, when all believers are reunited with their physical body and perfected in glory, there's going to be a completely new city, a restored city, a restored creation. We often don't think about the fact that the new Jerusalem, as as Revelation says, is going to descend upon a new earth. 
This story is far grander than just people saved and going to heaven. Man, it is a new creation, just as we have been made new creatures in Christ. So with that all in your mind, I want you to go ahead and just make the parallel. These people are in a land that they ultimately don't belong to. In the end, Babylon will be nothing, and their citizenship in the kingdom of God is what will matter. It's the same for us. It's the same for us. But that doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility in this land where we are strangers and exiles. And that's where we get such wonderful news this morning from Jeremiah 29. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and we'll walk through, highlight a few things. Hear the word of the Lord. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart I will be found by you declares the Lord and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you declares the Lord and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Because you have said the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in the city, your kinsmen who did not go out with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. 
I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence, and will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I've driven them. Because they did not pay attention to my words, declared the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but you would not listen, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel concerning Ahab, the son of Kolaiah and Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah and Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbors' wives. And they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows. And I am witness, declares the Lord. To Shemaiah of Nealam, you shall say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you have sent letters in your name to all the people who are in Jerusalem and to Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priests, and to all the priests, saying, The Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada, the priest, to have charge in the house of the Lord over every madman who prophesies, to put him in the stocks and neck irons. Now, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who is prophesying to you? For he has sent to us in Babylon, saying, Your exile will be long. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Zephaniah the priest read the letter in the hearing of Jeremiah the prophet. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Send to all the exiles, saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah of Neolam, Because Shemaiah had prophesied to you when I did not send him and has made you trust in a lie. Therefore, says the Lord, behold, I will punish Shemaiah of Neolam and his descendants. He shall not have anyone living among this people, and he shall not see the good that I will do to my people, declares the Lord, for he has spoken rebellion against the Lord. Pray with me. Father, once again, we ask for your blessing Help us to know your word, to understand your word, that we may know Jesus, that we may commune with him, even in these moments. Father, do this according to the power of the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message today is Future Peace. Future Peace. We're going to do our best to move quickly this morning. Um, So with that, I'm going to go ahead and and jump in. The theme today, we're called to faithfulness in the world as we await a future peace. We're called to faithfulness in the world as we await a future peace. And I would argue that that faithfulness to which we are called is far more important than we realize. I think we're going to see that in this text. I think that unfolds clearly. And I want to give you four instructions regarding future peace. Four instructions regarding future peace, and these will help us in our faithfulness. First off, live in light of future peace. 
live in light of future peace. You look at verses 1 through 9, and the, the main emphasis here is clearly the words of the letter that was sent, verses 4 through 7. And I'm going to read those verses again. Hear what he says. Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons. Give your, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city. Now that word is peace in some versions. Uh, the, the Hebrew word is actually shalom, okay? You may be familiar with that word. Seek the peace, the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, its peace, you will find your welfare, your peace. Live in light of future peace. The, the big idea on this point is as we live our lives of faithfulness, we are showing forth the peace that is ultimately coming by the hand of God. And these verses, I think, redeem so much of our lives that we do not see as eternally valuable. We use that word peace today. I'm not, I don't want you to have in mind like, like today's hippie day and we just, you know, peace and love, man. That's not what we're talking about. The peace that we're talking about right here is the peace that the Bible speaks of, that, that shalom, I know one day back when you were in VBS just like I was, and they said, hey, Hebrew word for, for a greeting is shalom, a peace. And so what did you do if you were like me? That whole week you walked around and you said shalom every time you went in a room and every time you greeted somebody. Shalom, shalom. We're doing that today, okay? We're doing that today. It's about shalom. It's about when all things are said and done, God's peace reigns, kind of shalom. All things are meted out righteously, governed righteously. This is the peace. This is the shalom that is coming in the end. So he's saying, hey, you need to seek whatever measure of that peace you can right here and right now in this land of exile. This peace is God's version of peace. This peace is the only lasting version of peace. Now, this is, to me, this is a really uniquely applicable text to the Old Testament. Uh, Kidner, commentary Kidner, uh, he said that compared to the New Testament passages about how our lives are lived in public, like what the world sees of us, he says, they hardly outstrip the boldness of this teaching. He says, at the very least, the people of God here should accept the situation, but God has little use for grudging attitudes. So, in the land of exile, maybe things aren't going like you thought they would. Maybe things aren't going like you want them to. This is not God saying, I know you're not happy about it, but just do these things, okay? No, he's saying, you ought to gladly walk in my ways in your land of exile, as you are a citizen of this nation. But he said, there's no time for self-pity. There's no time for self-pity. We've talked a lot about lamentation in the book of Jeremiah 
And I think there is a temptation for lamentation to become self-pity. We lament things and we lament things and then we start to think, oh man, we're just complaining at this point. There's a time when lamentation comes and it serves us well and it serves the purposes of God well, but you get to the point where you have to take up your responsibility and do some things. So after lamenting, I would say there are instructions here, very clear instructions about living in light of future peace. So first off, prepare for peace. Prepare for peace. Gives them basic, basic instructions. Build houses, live, live in them, plant gardens, eat the produce, uh, marry off your sons and daughters, multiply, do not decrease. Prepare for peace. So I would say it this way. Put yourselves in a situation where you can see the peace of God manifest in whatever way possible. Look at these verbs. Build, live, plant, eat, marry, multiply. What does that sound like? That sounds like normal life. That sounds like normal life. For the typical Christian. God has called you to live a normal life. It is part of your calling to build a house, live in it, to live in society, to vote, to interact with your neighbors, to go to the local store, to go get coffee, do your grocery shopping, all of this stuff. Show up at work and do a good job. These things, I guarantee you, many of us have not any time recently considered how God has instructed us to do such things for the good of all the people around us. Prepare for peace. As we move into the second one, we recognize that there are some people who are called to lead churches. There are some people who are called to the mission field, and we do not want to neglect that at all. But don't sell the work of God short in thinking that, well, they're doing something for the kingdom, and I'm just working a job, and I'm just at home raising my kids. That is valuable in the kingdom of God. And I hope that you'll see that from this text today. Those of you that are your lives revolve around uh, children, your children. Look, I hope you see the value in what you're doing. Jeremiah tells us in this text, it is valuable. He says, prepare for peace, but also work toward peace. Work toward peace. Seek the welfare of the city. Seek the peace of the city, the shalom of the city. Now, this encompasses everything about our public life, our comings and goings, our work, our dealings, everything related to being a citizen in society. But I'll just narrow in on one thing real quick. In general, I believe that Christians in our society have a low view of work. We have a low view of work because we see it completely as a man-centered or man-oriented task. I think it's going to encourage somebody today to hear the fact that God cares about your work, your job. Your work, when shaped by the gospel, has eternal significance. 
moral significance. So we can, we can go to the basic sort of moral principles of working, but let's find better value in it. So we, we, don't, we don't ride the clock. We don't cut the corners. Why? Well, we're not supposed to. No, that's so short-sighted. We don't cut corners because we want to do work that is excellent. Because God's work is excellent. Let us seek the peace of all those that are around us by doing good, God-honoring work. Don't just work for a paycheck. Don't just work to survive. Don't just work because you're supposed to. Don't just clock in and out thinking this is all part of the fall and it's just so terrible and my job is, is horrific and I can't stand it and I need a new job. No, I'm telling you this morning, redeem your view of work. Redeem your understanding of your job. Now, tell me, you're like, well, I'm retired. Well, you still have a job, don't you? I talk to folks that are retired, and they tell me, hey, I'm doing more now than I was when I was working. So obviously, whatever's occupying your time is what God has for you to do, and you need to do it well. It might be caring for grandkids. Do it well. It might be serving the poor. Do it well. It might just be faithfully ministering to your neighbors. Do it well. Excellently. Work toward that peace. Regarding the job, I would commend to you a book. Those of you who are workers, I would commend to you a book entitled Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. Every good endeavor. Here's something he says about a job. He says, a job is a vocation only if someone else calls you to do it for them rather than for yourself. And so our work can be a calling only if it, if it is reimagined as a mission of service to something beyond merely our own interests. Thinking of work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization slowly crushes a person, is what he says. You all know what that's like. That person right now that's complaining about their job is expressing that truth right now. It's crushing me. Oh, redeem your view of work in this land of exile. I got good news for you. You might think it's bad news, but work existed before the fall. And work's going to exist in the new creation. Now, it will be different because it will be fully redeemed. I can't tell you exactly what that's going to look like, but it will be fully redeemed. We root all of this in the truth of the gospel. How can we as Christians say that our work in this world, our work at our job is valuable because the Lord Jesus in his redemptive work made sure that everything that we experience, everything that could be used for the glory of God would be redeemed. He's not just rescuing you from your job. He is rescuing your job, ultimately. I guarantee you, you can find some aspect of redemption no matter what your job is. That there's a picture of redemption in what you do, no matter what it is. The good news of the gospel is that Christ died and rose again to save a people, 
but also an entire created order. So all that we do in terms of our work matters. This first point is where I'm spending all my time, so y'all just bear with me. We'll get there. Your work is an avenue for the peace of God to be seen in this world, a way you've been called to give some semblance of the coming kingdom of Christ. So he says, prepare for peace, work toward peace, and then intercede for peace. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. And I would just point you to uh, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, a good New Testament example. He says, Paul says to Timothy, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, when you intercede in that way, you are moving toward that expression of shalom to which we look. And that brings us to the second one, second instruction. Anticipate the arrival of future peace. So live in light of future peace, anticipate the arrival of future peace. Look at verses 10 through 14. Outside of a 70-year exile, these verses capture the ideal situation. If the people of God could envision a state of pure peace, it would look just like verses 11 through 14. So their motivation for faithful life in exile is the fact that it is temporary. The exile is temporary. Our lives here, they are vapors. And it will be eclipsed by a future peace, a future joy, a future home that is everlasting. So for this reason, verse 11 stands out as one of the most comforting verses in all the Bible. Probably one of the most memorized, one of the most quoted, because it puts the circumstances of our lives in proper perspective. It reminds us that God has not forgotten us. He has not left us hanging. In fact, his plans are perfect and cannot be thwarted. His plans give us hope. That is real hope, not just like, eh, I hope this is going to happen. No, this is hope that is based on the resurrection of Jesus. It's a future that is more sure than the sunrise. And upon this assurance, he welcomes them to draw near to him, to find him. And he says, you will find me. And he reminds them that the restoration will ultimately come. Their restoration to the land is only a shadow of the restoration that will come through Jesus Christ. Even the language used here seems to point to a time and situation that is much bigger than just Babylonian captivity. If you look at uh, 14, I'll be found by you, declares the Lord. I'll restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you. Now, in this context, it's really mainly Babylon. I think the Lord is speaking to much more than just the end of captivity and going back to the land. It brings to mind things like the Great Commission. 
it brings to mind the things like what Jesus says when he is going to send his angels to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. Matthew 24, 31. From all the nations I will gather you together. It points to that future peace where we will enjoy that communion with God. Ultimately, peace is infinitely better than immediate prosperity. Ultimate peace is infinitely better than immediate prosperity. But there's a caution found here, especially in our society where we enjoy many, many freedoms and much, much material prosperity. We must not confuse the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of this world. So if you're looking to our nation to bring ultimate peace, you'll be disappointed. If you're trying to make our nation into the recipient of the promises of God, you've misunderstood God's word. If you're looking in our nation for the things that only God can give, you will be left empty. So don't settle for a cheap imitation of what only God can provide. Look to him and be patient as you await the promise's fulfillment. Anticipate the arrival of future peace. Thirdly, receive refinement for future peace. Verses 15 to 23 turns a little uh, south here. All the hope that we had in these first few verses turn into, I got more judgment to do. Receive refinement for future peace. And there is this recurring theme of punishing those that are unbelievers, but then disciplining those, preparing those that will be the righteous remnant. That is the title of our series. In God's providence, the time in Babylon would ultimately give Daniel his unique ministry. It would ripen that remnant of true believers for a deep relationship with God. But also in the meantime, he has more refining to do. We see in this text, verses 15 to 19, the destruction of evil. And as I was reading this, I was thinking about, like we watch, uh, you know, HGTV and home remodels and stuff like that. And people who flip houses and there'll be an occasional house where they go and buy it and they get inside it and realize like, hey, this thing is completely condemned. And they have to tear it down to nothing and basically rebuild New. That's exactly what God was doing in Jerusalem. It is so condemned. It is so far beyond anything worth saving that I'm going to take the, the true people of God away from it just so I can destroy it completely. And all those people who rebelled against God who stayed there, they were the recipients of this judgment. They were destroyed. The evil, unbelieving rebels who remained in the city as well as every mark they made on Jerusalem, it was going to be utterly destroyed. And we read twice, sword, famine, pestilence, and as we've discovered already, this is the trio of God's purposeful destruction of Jerusalem. Destruction of evil. The easy application is those who do not know God. But also we see discipline among the exiles, verses 20 to 23. It seems that God is stripping away all the unbelief 
from among those in exile, the impurities, if you will. Some persons named here fall under the wrath of God. And he goes into verse 23, mentioning like the way that they have taken their neighbor's wives. So it's almost like God is opening up that foul cabinet of everything he's got against these people and says, hey, I'm judging you for every last thing that you have done, every last offense. It's a terrifying thought to think about the foul cabinets, so to speak, full of our offenses against God. But believer, here's the the wonderful news for you, that all that record was forgotten by God when you came to know Jesus. All that record is cast from the east is from how far the east is to the west. Do you see? There's no record of debt that stands against us because of Jesus' work. Colossians says he nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. But here's the terrifying flip side of this. For the unbeliever, the list of offenses is recorded with perfect records in heaven. And the unbeliever, I am convinced, will know all of every last sin that he's suffering for in hell as he suffers. This kind of judgment has an effect on true believers. You see, God judging those who were not true believers, those who pretended, and that gives visible illustration to God's hatred for sin. I think of Ananias and Sapphira. Imagine if you're at the church uh, in Acts when, you know, they, they supposedly gave everything to the church and Ananias and Sapphira are standing there. All of a sudden it's exposed. They lied to the Holy Spirit and they're struck dead on the spot. I don't know about you, but that's going to do something to me. That's going to do something to me. I'm going to be like, look, God is serious about this stuff. God is serious, and I am even more galvanized in my work for him, my commitment to him. Man, imagine seeing something like that so vivid, a display of God's wrath. In fact, right here it says the demise of Zedekiah and Ahab became a curse pronounced upon those who rebelled against God. We read it together. They were roasted in the fire. So we believers, we ought to receive the refinement of future or for future peace knowing that when all the impurities and all the dross is stripped away, we will be what God intends us to be. Receive that refinement. And then finally, fourthly, forget. Forget the false words about future peace. Now we read of a guy named Shemaiah. There's a series of letters that has been sent, gone back and forth. Shemaiah is the next in the line of prophets who, as Kidner writes, offer false hopes of instant freedom. We've heard 
All the false prophets, hey, exile won't be long. Hey, they're going to bring back the furniture. Don't worry. It'll be real soon. And Jeremiah's saying, no, you didn't get that from God. You're a liar. All you people don't listen to these liars. Exile, we're looking at 70 years. We've already heard of God's passionate anger toward false prophets. We observed it in his punishment in a couple of cases, namely, uh, as uh, Pastor Kyle preached, Hananiah. Even in this chapter, verses 8 and 9, we kind of skipped over it earlier, gives a caution about false prophets. And now a man by the name of Shemaiah pops up. And I would just tell you this, by way of application, one thing we can learn, there is never a shortage of false prophets. When the biblical message can be so twisted to accomplish selfish goals, make money, gain a platform, achieve fame and success, the people of God must be carefully discerning. From Shemaiah, we also learn that self-promotion is a dangerous thing. Shemaiah presumed to speak for God and went so far as to tell the priests how they ought to deal with Jeremiah. You remember what Jesus said about self-promotion. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So I would tell you, church, beware of self-promotion among the so-called prophets of God. I look upon our day of social media, and it is nauseating to see preachers of the word of God and their campaigns to prop themselves up. It's ungodly. It's ungodly. The message of false prophets, as we conclude here, is always similar. They downplay God's use of suffering in the lives of believers. They reason within themselves how they think God should operate, and then they preach that message in some cases, not realizing that they are contradicting God. The fact is that Jeremiah was giving them counsel in making the best of their exile days. And not just like, oh, we're going to try to make something out of it, you know, silver lining kind of stuff. No, he's saying, hey, what you're doing is going to be eternally valuable. Do we believe that, church? Do we believe that God didn't just redeem our souls through the work of Jesus, But he redeems so much more than that, that your work is meaningful, that your daily lives are meaningful, that the decisions that you make day in and day out have eternal significance. Do you believe that? You may be, I guess, uh, like many of the folks in this day, many of the prophets who wanted to speak this way, you don't want to hear about the suffering that is coming to God's people, or maybe the suffering that you're in, maybe the suffering that you've gone through, but you ought to know by now, you ought to know that God's purposes in suffering are ultimately for our good. They will ultimately render us ready for that future peace when Jesus Christ settles all things. When he comes and retrieves his bride, perfected, glorified with him, to be with him for all eternity.
Maybe this morning you don't know that future peace. Maybe this morning your best motivation is, hey, I need to do good things in the world because I want it to be a better place. Well, the news for you is that this world is going to endure the fire from the hand of God. And your motivation needs to be better than just making this world a better place. It needs to be motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to understand that greater motivation, maybe today you would repent of sin and believe. Maybe Christian, you would repent of your utterly sinful view of your work. The sinful views that you adopt throughout the week of how this ultimately doesn't matter. The day-to-day interactions. See them as God sees them. And you will see them as significant for all eternity. Let's respond to the word of God this morning. Father, we pray in Jesus' name, God, that you would redeem our view of these things. Redeem our view of this land. Redeem our understanding of life in 